Senior Focus. Welcome everyone, I'm Anne-Marie Curry. I'm your presenter for Senior Focus and our program today is uh, being recorded via Wellington uh, where I've been uh, investigating various aspects of heritage of interest to seniors. I want to start with the National Library because it's been several years since I've actually been and seen the copies of the um, treaty, the sheets that were signed uh, way back in 1840 and I wanted to acquaint myself with what they are doing in terms of public education. So I joined one of their tea and tours uh, sessions that they ran on, on this Thursday which was really excellent because the ARCO team there, the learning team, actually presented a short film, Nga Taonga, uh, Sound and Vision, and it, it actually illustrated across uh, many decades the development of uh, a presence of uh, Māori in our society uh, through protest, uh, through endeavouring to be heard and get the treaty uh, under, better understood and better enacted and part of our legal system and strengthened. So it was a very revealing uh, film production because a lot of it's original film and so it, it had various biases of the time and also various personalities of the time. So it was very interesting to watch uh, people who were influential speaking up and speaking out about their experiences, uh, what their observations and concerns about um, actions on behalf of uh, the whole society that ignored part of the society, which is a treaty partner, Māori, that were not inclusive. And various dignitaries actually listening to these speeches and uh, there was some recognition of injustice I noticed in the body language. And then those people went on, like Sir Jeffrey Palmer, to actually uh, write some of those injustices in their own um, spheres of influence. So having the knowledge of these people, looking at the, the film and then reflecting on what I saw, uh, rather than just reflecting on it as a film, but reflecting on the process of change that we've had in our society about the treaty was very insightful in itself. Then as part of the tour, we were taken through the major documents, the founding documents of our nation. And I have never seen a copy of the original document signed in 1835, which recognised the United Tribes of New Zealand uh, as a legitimate sovereign power of this nation. So to actually see that document uh, lit up in its glass case was quite a revelation and to hear more about it and about how um, the original relationship between Iwi and the Crown went back pre-Queen Victoria. So she inherited an existing relationship that acknowledged that sovereignty and so the document really... Uh, made clear that sovereignty which was already in existence and already recognised. Then, of course, we went on to look at the treaty documents 
And what was so amazing was the fact that it's possible to search uh, using modern digital technology uh, by putting a name into a search engine and possibly and then bring up the actual photographic evidence um, blown up on a screen of the signing by that particular ancestor, that particular tūpuna. Uh, so it's possible to trace your um, ancestry where your ancestors were involved in the signing of Tūpūrāti. And I think that's quite exciting because I never knew that was possible. We went on to look at the suffragette petition and the same process could be done there. So I was able to put in um, names like my great-grandmother's name from Christchurch and were able to pick, pick out um, possibilities. I mean, some women signed as Mrs. So-and-so using their husband's name. Other women uh, signed um, because it was Winsters. They, they used their family name. Other women um, just put initials and their husband's surname. So it was all different and... You needed to do a bit of family research, really, to be clear uh, what you were looking for. Uh, but the search engine is very powerful, and obviously if there were uh, 40 women who all used the surname Mitchell, then 40 names were possible, but you could look through and see what initials and what Christian names were there and what places they signed in. So... If they lived in, in a particular place, that was usually where they signed and you could, by a process of, of elimination, perhaps work out whether your ancestor was actually there or not. But of course, 6,000 of the signatories, their signatures were lost when the documents went to Parliament uh, for that boat, that famous boat, the final one in 1893 that got them in the boat. So if your ancestor happened to be amongst the 6,000 signatories that were lost, then you still can't prove much by the, the materials that are available to us today. However, I think it's worthwhile people seeing the actual reality, um, the actual concrete evidence, and we know that over time all kinds of um, conspiracy theories and mythologies grow up and people get into denial and say such and such didn't happen and, and this never happened and this wasn't like that. And this kind of uh, historical evidence being displayed actually brings to life the things that people cared about, the passion that was behind what people did in order to get the vote. And this is very important for younger people growing up today, a long way away from those times, to actually appreciate. You know, they didn't sign digitally, of course. They signed in, in pen or pencil and some in pink ink and some in purple ink and so on. But it just the reality of it just comes home to people, just seeing it. So I was fascinated to um, see that the ACO team, the learning team, have set up a special room and it's about highlighting the things that are precious, precious things that people might not feel comfortable sharing with the whole society or placing in a museum context, but might be invited to do so. And through schools, they have had uh, a range of younger people selecting 
items of great significance and items that are very precious and then they've come together to design a display about these items and they vary they can be things like um, a cross given in, in war for um, valiant service uh, to someone in the Māori battalion who's long since passed on um, but the uh, mokapuna the uh, grandchild has a certificate and is very proud of it and this has become one of those precious items on the display. It's obviously well protected in a glass cabinet but the young person is able to express what of significance this is, why it's important to them and to see so many young people able to share the, all of these items uh, entrust them to the care of the uh, National Library and the staff there and allow other children to come and share in those treasures and, and the preciousness of them. That's just such a delight and it opens up so many possibilities. Schools that have brought pupils in to visit and students to study what has been done there have gone away and decided that they're going to do um, a kind of mini exhibition of precious things within their own school environment uh, because they can see all the wonderful spin-offs. Anything that builds identity, strengthens us from within, is very protective and will help younger people move through difficult times uh, and times when they might be tempted uh, into dark spaces. And those who've attempted suicide and come out the other end have often been part of research and in the questions and dialogue they have shared how important having conversations with older people uh, was to them to protect them but also how important it was that they actually had a firm identity. They actually had an anchor point. They had some, some things that they felt were precious that they treasured that kept them thinking positively or moving ahead or wanting to stay on the earth. And so these sorts of exhibitions have many, many meanings and much value to many people in many ways and they can be part of preventative mental health strategies. So the thought that many students from many schools will visit this exhibition uh, was quite heartwarming. So I wanted to share that with you and also say that amongst the people on the tea and tours this morning were a number of seniors who were talking about organising, bringing groups in to experience what they had experienced. So they were keen to share and get the message out there about these documents and how they're presented and the enormous resource that's there for people to just get a grip and an understanding of what has built our nation legally and constitutionally, what is likely to come together if we were to become a republic, what would we need to think about and include where these documents become very central to anything that we might do next in this space. So <clears throat> whether it's um, U3A or Probus or um, an age concern group or any other senior group, um, I would welcome hearing about your interest in this and whether you uh, want to do what these people were doing today, uh, 
doing a recce and sorting out um, the value of this uh, exhibition and like-minded tours and working out a way to uh, incorporate it on their program for next year. So I would uh, welcome you doing the same and anyone wants any help with that, uh, just email me, annemarie.coury at gmail.com. Now, I think it's time for us to have a, a music break, and I've chosen uh, Bette Midler, Wind Beneath My Wings. Think in a way, when you have your uh, connections in place, uh, your belongingness strong, and you know who you are and where you come from, and you, you have a, a faith in the democracy and the country you're, you're living in that uh, your rights are protected. That gives you a great deal of wind beneath your wings. So I think it's a very apt song to have for our music break.
welcome back everyone. Uh, I'm Anne-Marie Curry and I'm talking about heritage and in particular about our constitutional history and our documents that are in the National Library. Having visited them myself in person uh, this morning, I'm feeling quite warmed up about this topic. I also wanted to um, share just a little bit of learning that I came across in my experience today and that is that the National Library are very keen to hear from people who have any information via letters or diaries that might um, elucidate information about people who signed um, either the treaty or signed the suffragette position, uh, petition and uh, anybody who knows anything about these uh, people to uh, collate what they know and send it in to Archives New Zealand and they will communicate with the National Library ARCO team, the learning team and this kind of information is being put together digitally to be available. So it's going to help us understand better what went on behind the scenes and one of the things that was discussed on the tour this morning was what it meant to get the vote in 1893. At that time, uh, the only people who could vote were men who were landholders, landowners. So if you didn't own land and you were male, you could not vote. So when women were trying to get the vote, that vote would be initially only for women uh, landowners. It wouldn't be all women. Uh, and women understood that but they knew the first step was to get the vote as it was currently um, legitimised and constituted. And then would come the later period in the uh, 1890s, the late 1890s, I think it was 1899, when uh, the vote was extended. And so women could vote whether they were landowners or not. But the first step was to get the groundswell uh, signing the petition and to get the petition into Parliament and to get those votes in Parliament. So that was an interesting part of the uh, suffragist movement, which I hadn't been fully aware of myself. Now, heritage means different things to different people. And a lot of the time, one immediately thinks of saving old buildings, and a great deal of work has gone in voluntarily throughout the country to do just that. And I think probably Central Otago is one of the richest areas of the country in terms of the number of heritage buildings that have been saved and uh, maintained quite elaborately, uh, and all by volunteers, largely. So... Uh, and things like the uh, Otago Rail Trail have led to uh, greater development and greater um, uh, efforts in saving buildings and maintaining them and so on. And the money from um, activities along the rail trail helps to uh, do this process a lot more smoothly and a lot more regularly than would otherwise happen in a, in a um, collection of small communities like Central Otago. Now... <coughs> In larger cities, there's always been competition um, to see who can get uh, the most buildings on a piece of land and get the most revenue out of it. And so heritage buildings don't always um, end up being saved and they often are under threat uh, and if they're burnt down, they're not 
uh, rebuilt and reconstructed according to how they were. So we do have problems and so often people focus on this and most recently the focus has been on trees and there's been a number of um, people protesting in Mount Albert about trees that they have um, considered heritage like oak trees and so on. But one area of heritage is books and there has been a very concerted protest uh, going on in Wellington about the Alexander Turnbull Library and the culling of books from that library. And no, they're not being burnt, uh, but we all know book burning is a, a slippery slope for it certainly... Um, in the early stages of any dictatorship it's one of the um, top activities on the list that get um, instigated and the Nazis were very good at doing this but they weren't the first <clears throat> what we have in the Alexander Turnbull Library situation is not a book burning of course but it's a, but this culling um, is hard to understand because when you look at what kinds of books are, are involved and, and just a wide range of books and the fact that they may be um, some of the few copies of such books held in the country, it starts to look rather odd. So there is a lot of um, high interest in what is going on. Some of the books have gone to a sale, and the sale was opened yesterday and is going on today. And I understand that there's a news item on the television tonight. It couldn't be at two places at once, so even though I was invited to speak to TV, I decided to stick with my original plan and stay at the National Library and I don't feel disappointed in that decision uh, but there were other people able to speak on the television about this. I just think that it's important. I know Helen Clark has um, made some comments and she's a veteran at speaking up when it matters but it's something that uh, hasn't yet received enough coverage in the media. It has been quite a bit on social media, uh, but I will talk about this in the future. I will actually interview someone who was at the book sales and someone who's been following this on social media and make sure that we have um, a deeper understanding of what's going on there because it's not all over yet and there's opportunities for us to... Uh, continue to put pressure on our MPs locally and on uh, the Minister of Internal Affairs and um, there's, there's a range of activities that can be still done to make a difference in this space. Now <clears throat> we're going to finish today's program I think with just a, a little bit of a, a nod towards heritage in Auckland in terms of uh, those people who have um, been giants in our um, intellectual forests and one is Dame Anne Salmond and I mentioned her on a previous program uh, in the way she had spoken out about certain contributions Māori had made to society and I think that there are um, a number of people who have added to our understanding both Māori and Pākehā across the board and I think those uh, people are at a, a particular special point in our history because they're people able to reach back to the past and are well versed in what happened in the past because they have studied in depth what happened 
but they're at the same time still contemporary enough to understand some of the changes, the rapid changes going on in our society. And with the shift to digital matters and uh, being involved in a digital world, we run the risk of losing a lot of our heritage, a lot of our book heritage, um, because, oh, we don't need that. We, we can store stuff digitally. We can operate digitally. We don't need um, the expense of having books housed, taking up room on valuable real estate. This sort of pressure is what is behind um, the culling of the books, and it's a sort of pressure which uh, can mean that uh, things happen, things disappear, things uh, go on which are not desirable but because people are not awake to what is happening um, they haven't noticed that in the dead of night some council has decided to sell a building off or something like this. Uh, they haven't seen the writing on the wall so to speak and seniors of people who have a little bit more time, a little bit more space to reflect a little bit more of a depth of connection to things of the past and so they have more interest in making sure that some things live on and, and some things are worth saving. With that energy and passion, seniors are very important in the heritage space and so while in the past I haven't dwelt a lot on heritage, I've had uh, Bill Rayner and other people in on the program who've covered off those topics. We're going to uh, invite a new crop of people to become involved in senior focus so that we get this uh, heritage aspect into the program regularly and we are kept abreast of events and things that are taking place currently and things we need to be aware of. So thank you for listening today. I wish you all the best and uh, we'll keep abreast of these issues and we'll hear from you and do get in touch via the email and listen in next week. Thank you for listening. Get together with Senior Focus next Sunday at 5.25pm on Planet FM 104.6 or listen online at any time at planetaudio.org.nz forward slash Senior Focus and do note Senior Focus is one word. Sleep.